0: Maria Bartiromo is having a change of heart, backing off her staunch defense of Kevin McCarthy after backlash from her fire exchange with Congressman Matt Gates on her Fox News Sunday show. The Florida congressman and Fox News host disagreed vociferously over the path forward on funding, with Bartiromo suggesting that Gates' stonewalling is putting Republican gains at risk, such as the recent inquiry into President Joe Biden on bribery allegations. But Congressman Gates eloquently explained the difference between political theater and real action.
1: We can set up committees and have hearings and yell at people. But at the end of the day, if we still send the check to fund a weaponized government, having a weaponization subcommittee is little relief to the American people. And if any of this was serious, we would be sending out subpoenas and compelling process the way the January 6th committee did. We should be operating like them. Instead, we're playing patty cake with the Bidens. We're allowing them to get away with it. And we're funding it. We're sending the money. If we were serious, use the power.
0: Congressman Gates' insistence on defunding the weaponization of the federal government couldn't be any more in line with the general American public. That, according to a new recent poll by the good folks over at Rasmussen Reports, when presented with the definition of a police state as a quote tyrannical government that engages in mass surveillance, censorship, ideological indoctrination, and targeting of political opponents, and then asked, "How concerned are you?" That America is becoming a police state, a whopping 72% of respondents agreed that they are concerned, with 46% saying very concerned. Filmmaker, Filmmaker and author Dinesh D'Souza takes on the growing weaponization of the federal government in his upcoming theatrical release, Police State, with Dan Bongino, Nick Searcy, and featuring Rand Paul, Jim Jordan, and many others.
1: as a person to look at, and then we go find out what crime you did. FBI!
2: Our focus is shifting. Our main priority as a bureau is gonna be domestic terrorism. really
1: paints anybody who's right of center. If you're a pro-life, pro-family Catholic, they define you as radical.
2: These are anti-government. We have freedom of religion and freedom of speech. Violent extremists, and they must be dealt with. We can do anything we want.
0: And Mr. Dinesh D'Azousa joins us now. It's good to see you, Dinesh.
3: Um, I I appreciate you being
0: here because I'm excited about your film.
3: Well, it's a film that I never wanted to make. I mean, why? Because I didn't want America to become a country where you kind of needed to make a film like this. But when I think back, Emerald, over my life here in America and the liberties that we all took for granted, I mean, the liberties spelled out in the Bill of Rights, all of them, right to free speech, to conscience, freedom of assembly, right to petition the government, equal justice under the law. All of these things have suddenly now become uh, fragile, have become precarious. And so this film asks a startling question, is America becoming the kind of nightmare police state that we have deplored uh, in other countries, North Korea, China, the old Soviet Union, I think at one point we thought that China would become more like us, but it seems that we are becoming more like them.
0: Yeah, I agree. Uh, Dan Bongino's comments in that trailer really resonated with me because I realized at some point that I have become wary some of a knock at the door and, and wondering if at some point as a journalist who doesn't act in line with the corporate media, if I'm at risk, At what point, Dinesh, because you've been very hopeful in your past films. I've seen all of them, right? I remember seeing one of them premiere at a Freedom Fest years ago in Las Vegas. And you've done such amazing work. And despite the country's problems, you've always been very hopeful. So what specific instance was it that you knew you had to do this film and ask this question?
3: Yeah, this film, I would say, is not... Hopeful in that sense. Uh, typically, in my earlier films, I'd always be excited when the audience stood up and cheered at the end. They won't do that after this film, just like they didn't do it after Two Thousand Mules, because the film is a sort of a. Uh, I, I, I make it. I compare it to an animal giving a, a kind of a warning to the herd that there is like a cheetah in the trees. Uh, a cheetah that not everybody sees. In fact, a lot of Americans will be like, well, you know, I'm not Trump, and I didn't go in the Capitol on January 6th, so I'm gonna be okay. I'm a law-abiding guy, I pay my taxes. These guys don't realize how vulnerable they are. Uh, just like the January 6th defendants, many of them cooperated with the FBI. Here's my passport, Here's my. here are all my social media posts. Why? Because We trust the FBI. So we are in a dangerous environment, and I'm trying to sound a a real warning because at some point you cannot fight back against a police state. You can only run. But we are in a position to block the police state. There are things we can do. That's what this movie's about.
0: And so in the film, that was going to be my my next question to you because you talk to people like Kyle Serafin, who's a regular on this show, and we're often breaking down the problems within federal law enforcement. And of course, he always has ideas of how you take that on. So you present solutions in this film because you think there's still a chance that we can deconstruct what is becoming a police state.
3: Yeah, the focus of the film is really twofold. Number one, to bring out from insiders who have worked, by the way, it's not just the FBI. The FBI is the tip of the iceberg. Department of Homeland Security is like 10 times bigger than the FBI. Then we have all the other agencies of the government. And also, we make the point in the film that this isn't just a matter of the so-called deep state, because that implies everybody's hiding in the background. A lot of the police state is out in the open. I mean, all you have to do is go look at the Google uh, YouTube guidelines. They tell you, if you don't agree with us on, on the trans issue and abortion and climate change, we're going to ban you. So that's not secret. That's out in the open. The police state in America has a unique quality. So a lot of the film is just exposing it and putting on putting the forefront ordinary people. Who describe their experience with the police state and I think this is really going to send a chill up the spine of America and then toward the end of the film we talk about the opportunity to to, to reverse this and to block it to roll it back
0: Well, that's wonderful because you know one thing I really appreciate about your work Dinesh is that it often reaches people that uh, don't tune into conservative media per se or might not have this other this information otherwise and it does have the potential to change hearts and minds and wake up a lot of people just as your last film, uh, 2,000 Mules, did as well. And when we're talking about deconstructing the police state or, or stopping and it's in a tra- its tracks, it's going to require elections. And Canada's winning elections that are willing to take on this bureaucracy, as you know, that is really out in the open but very intimidating, right? Because they can smear these people and they often back off. Um, but Rasmussen polling other Rasmussen polling also shows that Americans feel equally concerned about election security and the latest latest push by the GOP is to beat Democrats at their own game so to speak and that brings up uh what the RNC chairwoman and many Republican influencers are out there specifically over the weekend calling for voters and grassroots operatives to focus on ballot harvesting early voting um, recently, I don't know if you saw this, Dinesh, but the Heritage Foundation point man on election integrity, who I, I worked with a lot in the past, Hans Bond, excuse me, Spakovsky, said he doesn't see anything wrong with taking advantage of such a rule like ballot harvesting, where it's allowed while still working to change it, because it shouldn't be a rule, that it could cancel out, in so many words, uh, the Democrat efforts at ballot harvesting. The critics of the plan say that you can't, you can't outdo the cheaters and that they will always have more ballots on hand to make up for any Republican gains. So given what you learned in doing your last film, where do you sit on this, um, Dinesh? And what did you find out in, in doing the last film that is relevant to whether or not Republicans should be focused on early voting and ballot harvesting?
3: You know, I think, Emerald. first of all, we should realize that the question you're asking is, is part of a larger issue. And that's this. Do Republicans start to behave more like Democrats? Uh, and I think the answer to that question is, in some respects, we have to. Why? Because think of it this way. If they try to pack the court and we are committed to nine, then they go, listen, we'll just keep doing it. And even if we fail, we have nothing to lose because those idiots, when they come in, they're not going to do what we're doing or if they use the police agencies of government to go after political dissidents, people on our side, and we go, oh, we're too principled, we'll never do that to you, then they go, great, we can do it to you in the full confidence that you'll never do it to us. And the same can be applied to ballot harvesting. You know what, we're going to harvest ballots. The good news is that those guys will never dream of doing the same thing, even when it's legal as it is in some states. So I think the point is, we've got to, the, the broad point I would make is, look, uh, we've got to realize that we are in a sort of a combat mode with these guys. And and acting on principle, being better than them, this isn't really going to do it. If they have a sword, we can't fight them with our arms and legs. Uh, we're going to have to re- meet them with their own sort of political weapons. And so I guess my view is that in places like California, where you can collect ballots and deliver them, it's not even just for your family. I think that we should organize a successful and effective ballot harvesting program, and we're fully capable of doing it if we set our minds to it.
0: Yeah, I think the concern with some of the critics is that they they'll print more ballots, they'll have more ballots, but I think you make an excellent point as well. This is something we're going to continue to discuss on the show as we go we go further because it feels like it's becoming a kind of a point of debate between conservatives who agree on most issues, but it's kind of becoming a sticking point. Um, Dinesh, I'm so excited about your film. I'm glad you did this because this is a growing concern for many Americans, not just those who are journalism or, or, or members of Congress or political operatives. Uh, again, the film comes out. It'll make its theatrical debut on October 23rd and 25th. You can go to policestatefilm.net, policestatefilm.net. to find out if it's in a theater near you and get tickets. And then I assume, Dinesh, as you did with the other film, you'll also be able to purchase and watch the film online, correct?
3: Yeah, eventually it will be. But the beauty of the theater is it's really fun to see it in the theater. I make the films that way. And it's also fun to see it with like-minded people. But I want to emphasize that there's only one way to get tickets. You can't get them on Fandango or from the theaters. You got to go to policestatefilm.net, get them off the website. We've bought out hundreds of theaters and so, great time to get tickets early.
0: Excellent. We will all do so. Thank you so much, Dinesh. It's, Dinesh, it's good to see you.
3: A pleasure.
2: What do you- I think this happens at the end of every civilization's reign and I think this happened with the Greeks and it happened with the Romans. Romans. It's one of the things that Douglas Murray, um, when I had him on my podcast, was discussing. He said one of the things that happens at the end of civilizations is they become obsessed with gender. Mm. It's, a, it's a thing that happens where men start becoming women women start becoming men and it becomes like a big fo- focus, like cross-dressing and all this stuff becomes a, a big point of focus. And I was like, well, why is that? He goes, it, it seems to be that they're dissolving all boundaries and all norms and all societal structure and that's a part of it. It's like gender roles.
1: So when people hear the word totalitarian, they often think of secret police, you know, men in jackboots and concentration camps or gulags or mass surveillance. And all those features are important, but the real starting point and the, the, the core of a totalitarian system is an ideology that monopolizes what counts as rationality and what counts as knowledge, what counts as a legitimate question to ask. So if you raise your hand and ask an inconvenient question, the Marxist ideologue or the Nazi ideologue or the fascist ideologue doesn't say, hey Jan, let's, let's sit down and, and debate this question. Or you present your evidence, and I'll present mine, and we'll try to learn from one another. They simply say, "No, you're questioning the ideology because you're infected with bourgeois consciousness." Or, you know, for the Nazi, you're just infected with Jew consciousness. You're protecting your own class-based interest, or you're protecting your own, um, uh, you know, your own uh, I- interest to advance your aims, and therefore you're not worth talking to. Right, you're not part of the enlightened elites that understand the direction of history, that understand where things need to go. And so I'm not gonna debate you, I'm just gonna exclude you from public conversation. That's where the concentration camps and the gulags and the secret police come in to enforce the ideology. One of the reasons I think now today in Western countries, which we don't tend to think of as totalitarian, one of the reasons that I'm very concerned about the direction that we're moving is because if you look at uh, new phenomena, new trends, like government sponsored censorship, they mirror that starting point of totalitarian systems. They they put forward a particular ideology or particular public policy proposal and say, Citizens are not allowed to question this. Citizens are not allowed to present evidence that might call this public policy into question. And in fact, if they do so, we're going to label them as dangerous. We're going to algorithmically, let's say, in, you know, on social media, exclude them from the realm of public conversation. We're gonna limit their reach. We're gonna limit the ability of other people to hear their ideas. This is where totalitarian systems always begin. And in fact, this is where totalitarian systems always end up. Once the ideology is sufficiently adopted by enough members of the population, once once people get used to the idea that I'm not allowed to ask questions and they just internalize those prohibitions, at, at the end point of that process, you don't even need concentration camps or secret police or mass surveillance anymore because every citizen becomes a a, a member of the Gestapo or the KGB, every citizen starts silencing uh, their fellow citizens if they raise any inconvenient questions that might challenge the ideology. This, according to Hannah Arendt, who studied the totalitarian systems of the 20th century, uh, this becomes then the worst form of imprisonment in a sense. Uh, and she, drew, she draws a distinction between dictatorships that rule through external force and they rule by means of instilling fear in the population. You know, I'm not gonna say the wrong thing because I don't wanna get punished by the regime. Uh, I'm not gonna challenge the dictatorial ruler and his ideas because you know he might then come down on me or do something to harm me or harm my family. A totalitarian regime uses external force initially to try to funnel people into the ideology, but eventually the totalitarian system no longer needs to use external force because people have internalized the ideology. In a dictatorship, you still at least have the interior freedom, even if your exterior freedom is constrained, you still have the interior freedom to think your own thoughts and to have your own opinions and to have your own judgments. You know, you might voice them only very carefully uh, and you might not voice them at all, but you could still, you can still, you know, think them on your own. But in a totalitarian system, in a perfectly enacted totalitarian system, you don't even have that because the ideology has become so internalized that the questions no longer occur to you. The dissenting thoughts no longer occur to you. You're in a prison with invisible bars without even realizing that, you, 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 that, that you're in prison. Your interior freedom has also been subsumed into that totalitarian system. Don't forget to subscribe to our alerts newsletter and you'll never miss an episode. framework for assessing risk it's a complete fraud it's much more of a risk mitigation tool it's a fraud because it's not better for shareholders it's not better for stockholders our research shows that companies that do well on
3: the SG are, end up doing better or fail less
1: a movement has been growing to unite corporations governments and global institutions its purpose is to deal with issues like climate change racism inequality and gun control. It is called ESG. If you
3: can control the financial markets, if you can control the access to capital, you can dictate to any industry in the United States the way things are going to be
1: run. BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard, these are just three firms, control about $21 trillion. That's about the size of the US GDP. Will governments and corporations decide what we can say? Will they decide what we buy, how we travel, what we eat? Government is able to use those companies to do through the back door what government could not accomplish through the front door under the Constitution.
2: Basically, you're gutting the middle class by getting rid of small business. Those small businesses won't be able to keep up with the ESG report.
0: Immediately when that happened, PayPal froze the account and wouldn't let us access any of the funds that had been donated to us.
1: So you can build a huge following, but you don't own your audience. They own your audience. They're just giving you access to it. The tech companies, to some extent, are just an arm of the people in positions of power in
2: government. Your primary concern is who has my back? And the state is that entity. Those companies that reflect and reiterate state narratives will be rewarded, and those who don't, will be punished. I believe this may be one of the biggest cases to reach the United States Supreme Court in this century. We don't vote on CEOs. We don't vote on some global world forum. This is the United States of America.
3: A year ago,
1: I was very pessimistic. I didn't think people were going to catch on to this. Uh, Turns out it's not. Turns out I was wrong.
2: As I watch various commentators talk about the Ukrainian campaign, the idea of the great counteroffensive, and I watch people getting frustrated and saying, gee, I've been watching for weeks and nothing much has happened yet, or they seem to be making slow progress. I'm reminded that some of the greatest military victories were long, slow, grinding processes. They weren't the kind of fast, sweeping cavalry attacks, the tanks rolling across the open plain, the sudden dramatic movements. Three in particular come to mind Vicksburg in the Civil War, breaking out in Normandy in World War II, and what the Ukrainians are faced with in eastern Ukraine. Where the Russians have built very deep defenses and very deep fortifications. Let me share with you these because I think they're really important. Vicksburg was a very important link in the Mississippi River. If the Confederates lost it, they would in fact have been cut off with Arkansas, western Louisiana, and Texas isolated from the eastern part of the Confederacy. In addition, once the Union had complete access to the entire Mississippi, all of the manufactured and agricultural goods from the entire Midwest could go down to New Orleans and be shipped around the world. So there was an enormous value from the standpoint of the Confederacy to holding on to uh, Vicksburg. And they poured a substantial number of troops into Vicksburg under General Pemberton. And, and he was faced, Pendleton was faced with a great problem. He wasn't strong enough to break out against the Union Army, but he was strong enough to turn Vicksburg into a fortification. And the nature of that area, if you ever drive around there, there are swamps, there are creeks, there are smaller rivers feeding into the Mississippi. It's a very difficult area. Now, General Grant, who was the head of the Union Army in that area, was faced with an even bigger problem. How was he going to try to take Vicksburg? His army was north of Vicksburg, and yet you couldn't really approach Vicksburg from the north very well because the swamps and the rivers just made it almost impassable. So Grant decided that he would have to move south. But while he was planning and developing, he had his men work to try to cut a canal through the curve in the Mississippi. In theory, if they could have cut a big enough canal, they could have bypassed Vicksburg and had traffic go up and down the river, and the Confederates couldn't have stopped them. Now, there were two reasons I think Grant was doing this. One was it might work, very unlikely, very, very hard area because the power of the Mississippi River is so great, particularly when it floods, that they're probably going to have a very really hard time, and they were trying to do it through a swamp. The second reason, I think, was he wanted to keep the troops busy. He knew that if they sat around with nothing to do, they'd become demoralized. They'd begin to have sicknesses. They'd be harder to discipline. So he just kept them working. Meanwhile, he developed his plans to literally cut loose, go straight down the river, and then come off on the eastern side, which is where Vicksburg is, march back around from the South now up to Vicksburg. This was a very elaborate, very complicated campaign, and it took months. Luckily for Grant, he had fought well enough, and Lincoln had enough faith in him, that Lincoln was willing to give him the time to pull this off. If Lincoln had been impatient, if he'd been like some of our armchair quarterbacks on television today, he'd have replaced Grant was somebody who probably would have made a total mess of it. Grant was, I think, the best general in either army in the Civil War. He had a very clear, methodical understanding of what he was doing. His memoirs, by the way, which he wrote personally, his close friend Mark Twain was his advisor on style. But, But Grant's memoirs are probably the best single book written on the Civil War and are a huge education to read. So Grant crosses over. Now, he wants to make sure that while his army is faced towards the northwest, which is where Vicksburg is, that nobody's coming at him from the south, because you still have most of Mississippi behind you, and you have Alabama, some of Tennessee, Georgia. So he brought in Colonel Grierson, and he asked Grierson to take a pretty large cavalry unit, about 1,800 men, march through Mississippi coming in from the north, running straight down the middle of the state, and exiting near Baton Rouge. Grierson's Raid ultimately becomes a movie, The Horse Soldiers, uh, with John Wayne and William Holden, uh, which is a pretty interesting, reasonably accurate explanation of what he did. It's an amazing raid. Uh, the novel that was written about it, called The Horse Soldiers, is absolutely worth reading. Grierson was a very smart man. He was an engineer, he's not regular army, but he understood tactics he understood geography understood how to read maps and he kept the confederates so confused about where he was that they took, they spent thousands and thousands of men chasing him all over central and southern mississippi those people weren't available to go and attack grant so it was a very successful side maneuver by grant all of this took time gradually they were closing in on vicksburg they were starving it of ammunition of food gradually weakening the population. And ultimately, on the 4th of July, 1863, Vicksburg surrendered. It was an enormous victory, eclipsed in part by the Great Battle of Gettysburg in the East. But it signaled an enormous break in the Confederacy. But notice what I just described to you. It took time. If we'd had television back then and 24-hour-a-day coverage, You'd have had all sorts of people saying, "This guy Grant doesn't know how to fight. You know, he ought to be brought home. This campaign's going to be a big failure." Lincoln understood that sometimes you just had to do what you had to do, so he stuck to it. Now, let me give you the second example: breaking out of Normandy. The most complex single thing humans have ever done is D-Day, the sixth of June, when over a hundred thousand Allied forces, paratroopers, some by ship, landed in Normandy. It was the beginning of the effort to liberate Europe from the Nazis. However, while the landing did pretty darn well, and while we built up our forces around the beaches pretty rapidly, we suddenly discovered we'd made a huge mistake. The aerial photography that they'd been using showed these rows of hedges, but they didn't actually show what they were like in detail. It turned out that hedge rows in Normandy were these ancient huge bushes that were so big that each little each little field was surrounded by hedges each hedge was a place to put machine guns mortars infantry and you had to go literally one field at a time it was very expensive in human loss it was very expensive in time and so we were bogged down sort of chewing our way through the hedges instead of a sudden rapid breakout We found ourselves day after day, slowly, we had to invent, for example, a tank that had a bulldozer on the front of it so it could go in and actually rip up the hedges. We found ourselves developing all sorts of techniques, trying to understand it. At one point, we used a massive strategic bomber campaign, dropped an enormous number of bombs. The first time we did it, there was a terrible mistake in calculations, and a great number of the bombs fell short killing a significant number of Allied troops, including a four-star general, who was the number two man in the army at the time. And so, again, if we'd had modern television coverage, they probably would have wanted to replace Bradley, the commander of the American forces, Montgomery, the commander of the British forces, and General Eisenhower, the commander of Allied forces Europe, because, after all, they weren't breaking loose. Now, the fact is, when they did break loose, finally, Suddenly, George Patton is released. He has armor. He knows how to move quickly. And everything suddenly speeds up because they're now through the hedgerows. But during the hedgerow fight, it was slow, it was expensive. You couldn't rush forward, or you just got killed. Now, let's take those two lessons and look at what's happening in Ukraine. The Russians knew that Ukraine was going to counterattack, which itself is significant. That meant the Russians didn't have the forces to continue their offensive campaign to try to seize Kiev and the rest of Ukraine. So they're now sort of have got the area they took initially, and now they're trying to hold it. And the way they're trying to hold it is relatively smart. They're putting in huge fortifications, lots and lots of landmines, and establishing fields of fire so that they are interlocked so that they can hit you from every direction. If the Ukrainians were to try to fight a mobile armored fight in that area they'd lose every single tank you just you cannot throw armor into that kind of a fortification without getting slaughtered. so what do they have to do? They have to use artillery and in particular, they have to use artillery behind the Russian lines to cut off their logistics to kill their trucks with ammunition, the trucks with food, the trucks with fuel to hit the command posts to make it impossible to reinforce, to break down the morale of the Russians who are holding the line, and then painstakingly, slowly, carefully, they have to take out the mines. They have to create paths through the minefields. They have to be able to have, when the Russians open artillery, they have to have counter-battery fire to take out the Russian artillery, and they have to be prepared to be patient and careful because if they go quickly, they're going to die. I think people who glibly look at that and say, well, it's not going as fast as it should, have no idea how hard these kind of fights are, and no idea what's at stake. So I would say to you, take a look at Vicksburg, take a look at the hedgerow fighting in Normandy, and then take a look at the challenges Ukraine is living up to and realize, Ukrainian resistance is a miracle. Remember, the top general in the American army said publicly before the war, The Russians would be in Kyiv in three days. Well, he was wrong, and they didn't get there. And I think we had to have a little more faith in the Ukrainian courage and Ukrainian willingness to fight, and a little less faith in our armchair critics back home, including some of those who are still on duty, who probably should be retired because they don't know what they're talking about. I just wanted to share with you a little historic perspective on what we're living through. My new book, March to the Majority, is now a bestseller and is available at Amazon and Barnes & Noble and retailers everywhere. Get it today by clicking on the link in the description below.